Hello and welcome to Columbia Calling. I'm Emily Hart and this week we are headed back in time to a very different Columbia, a Columbia well before the arrival of human beings. And in the process of looking back, we'll also be looking forwards to what the future on this planet might look like. We've got with us today some of the team behind Hace Tiempo, an incredible book on Colombia's paleontological past. We have Colombia's leading paleontologist, Carlos Jaramillo, paleobotanist at AFIT University, Camila Martinez, and science communications specialist at Parque Explorer, Luz Elena Oviedo. This illustrated book is a journey through the country's past and winner of an Alejandro Angel Prize, one of the most important awards for scientists in Colombia. More than 30 Colombian paleontologists working all over the world came together to contribute to this book, which is available free online. I will, of course, be sharing the link, but the physical version is for sale through the website of the Humboldt Institute, who were a key partner in its creation. Colombia is enormously fossil rich and has a huge variety of habitats, both past and present. Understanding Colombia's ancient flora and fauna is key to understanding the country's incredible biodiversity today. That biodiversity is the product of millions of years of evolution, but in the alarmingly short term, it's threatened by climate change and the accelerating global extinction of species. As well as revealing the roots of Colombia's biodiversity, the project uniquely also gives readers in Colombia a resource which relates to the land around them. Rather than well-known dinosaurs like Tyrannosaurus rex or Triceratops, this book presents prehistoric animals peculiar to Colombia, like the six-ton giant sloth, which lived here 50 million years ago, like the giant turtles the size of cars, or like the megalodon, which roamed Colombia's waters, the biggest shark ever to exist, bigger than a school bus. The Titanoboa, meanwhile, was a vast snake weighing over a ton, It roamed 60 million years ago in the then-tropical jungles of La Guajira. It's an ancestor to the anaconda and the boa constrictor, with a body 13 metres long, and at a cross-section the size of a bicycle wheel. It's the largest snake ever to roam the earth, and it was discovered by Carlos himself only a few years ago, having analysed tonnes of rocks extracted from the Cerejon mines still active in La Guajira today. The expanded edition of this book, just out, also includes a new chapter on Perihosaurus la Paz, a long-necked herbivorous Colombian dinosaur. It was discovered in 2018 in the Serrania de Perija, and its name pays homage both to where it was discovered and to the 2016 peace agreement with the FARC, hence La Paz. That peace agreement allowed paleontologists to explore the region of the Serrania for the first time in decades leading to the discovery. So today we're going to be talking all about what Colombia looked like a very long time ago, what's happened since, what fossil records can teach us about climate change, and whether humans are in fact, as Carlos will argue, the least successful species ever to live on planet Earth. All that to come, but first, your top stories for the week. The Columbia Calling podcast is sponsored by Latin News, a leading source of political and economic analysis on Latin America and the Caribbean since 1967. Their flagship publication, the Latin American Weekly Report, provides a behind-the-scenes briefing on all the week's key developments throughout the region. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at latinnews.com. We are also sponsored by 
BNB Columbia Tours, which is a leading tour operator providing a wonderful range of exclusive small group shared tours for those over 50, along with customizable private tours to both popular and off-the-map destinations throughout this beautiful and diverse country. If you're interested in experiencing one of their unforgettable journeys through Colombia, be it a shared tour with like-minded travelers or creating a unique private package of your own, just complete the form on the Columbia Calling website, that's www.columbiacalling.co, or the BNB Columbia Tours website, that's www.bnbcolombia.com, and they'll be in touch within 24 hours to answer all of your questions and to start the planning of your exclusive Colombian adventure. So that's bnbcolombia.com and latinnews.com. Thank you for supporting our sponsors. FARC dissident group the Estado Mayor Central, the EMC, have announced a suspension of peace talks with the Colombian government following a week of high tensions in Cauca, with a video emerging online which seemed to show the local population expelling soldiers from the territory, allegedly at the behest of the group. The EMC have assured that the ceasefire will continue until January, as agreed. They have, however, announced that talks are at breaking point, possibly definitively, citing government failures to comply with agreements and protocols, including the removal of military presence from certain territories. Another set of peace talks with guerrilla group the ELN, the Ejército de Liberación Nacional, has also been shaken this week. The group acknowledged responsibility for the kidnap of the parents of footballer Luis Diaz. Both parents of Liverpool player and Colombian national team striker were kidnapped on the 28th of October, though his mother, Silenis Marulanda, was released a few hours later. The commando responsible, the Frente de Guerra Norte, announced that they are preparing to release Diaz's father, Luis Manuel Diaz, but that the release has not been possible because the area continues to be militarised. The group has also said that the commando responsible did not know that the victim was the father of the athlete, and upon discovering the fact, his release was ordered. Kidnaps continue in Colombia without attention or comment, much less exceptionalist behaviour from armed groups, but international attention on this case has forced reactions from ELN and government alike. Crucially, the incident casts doubt on the control that the ELN High Command has over the federated groups which constitute the structure. It also highlights the conflicting interpretations of the scope of the ceasefire agreement. ELN chief negotiator Pablo Beltran said that it did not include kidnapping and extortion. The government, however, says they will take the case to the ceasefire monitoring and verification mechanism. Meanwhile, the ceasefire between the two major armed groups of the city of Buenaventura, the Xotas and the Espartanos, will be extended until February of next year, with a verification mechanism to be put in place from this month. The region's most ambitious health tax is to be implemented this year in Colombia. A progressive tax on ultra-processed food, sugary drinks, sweets and some meats. The measure has been years in the making, strongly resisted by lobbies and corporations from the food industry. But during the remainder of this year, those products will be subject to a 10% increase, rising to 15% next year and 20% in 2025. In the case of drinks, the tax will depend on the concentration of sugar. And President Gustavo Petro came out on X, formerly Twitter, to deny that he has a substance addiction, saying the only addiction I have is coffee in the morning. 
The message came in response to an open letter from journalist Maria Jimena Dusan via outlet Cambio, asking him to admit that he had a substance issue, if that was in fact the case. Colombia has recalled its ambassador to Israel amid deteriorating diplomatic relations with that country, saying Colombia expresses its strongest rejection of the actions of Israeli security forces in Gaza in areas densely populated by civilians, reiterating the urgency of a ceasefire and the obligations of international humanitarian law, once again suggesting a peace conference to work towards a peaceful solution. Chile has also recalled its ambassador to Israel, and Bolivia went further, cutting diplomatic ties entirely. Those were your headlines. Let's get into this week's episode of Columbia Calling. Okay, hello, and thank you all so much for joining us on the show. It's great to have you here. Thank you, Emily, for the invitation. Hello. Hi, Emily. So we have Camila and Carlos and Luz. Okay, so my name is Camila. Hi, my name is Luz. Hi, I'm Carlos, and we had this idea about Hace Tiempo with Luz many, many years ago. We have been doing paleontology and geology all over Colombia for many, many years, great, before the time you were born, we all you were born, and we always, I always saw that that the the people in Colombia didn't have any anything to read about the geology and paleontology of Colombia. All the books that they will see would be about dinosaurs from either Canada, the USA, or Argentina. And we have to do something about that. And and years passed by, and no, nobody did anything. So we decided, well, it's time for us to tackle this problem. Amazing. And Luz, what, what made you want to do this project? What was it about illustrating Colombia's distant past that inspired you? Well, I've, I've always been interested on in communicating science and, you know, exciting things to as many people as, as we can. So, so when we had this idea, uh, we, you know, sketched uh, something in a paper and then at the end, uh, like to finally give the books to to a lot of kids in different regions in Colombia. (laughs) I love it. And I'm so interested in what you were saying, Carlos, about Colombian kids studying dinosaurs that simply were not here. There being a kind of set of European or Canadian, North American distant past sort of tropes that have been made universal but are not. Um, Like Colombian children having to study the Romans instead of their own ancestors. You know, there's a a kind of flat, a flattening effect that globalization has. Yeah, we, in Colombia, we still behave as a colony. The, the investment in science and research in Colombia is almost none. Mm. And as time goes by, it's even worse. And so a natural uh, result of that is that, that we don't produce our own knowledge. We are always expecting somebody to teach us something of that. And it's not only in geology, but across many different fields of expertise. If you think about our economy, it's still dependent on all the things that we send abroad and we buy them again. Yeah, it's a fascinating example of the kind of algo propio movement of, of creating authentic knowledge that's actually about Colombia. So what, given that Colombia, as you've said, is just such a diverse place, not only now, but in terms of its its fossil records. Um, so what can what's been and what's being found here still tell us about the country or the land as it was? Well, Colombia, because of the po- 
of the position, the geological position between major tectonic plates. It's a very geologically active region. You know, living in Canada or in the USA, you will probably never feel an earthquake. But if you're in Colombia, that happens all the time because the landscape is has been always being transformed as the time goes by. Right. And that's really linked to biodiversity. This transformation of the landscape is pumping up the process. Something also that you learn from the fossil record is that that the species are not created overnight. It takes geological time to produce biodiversity. So even even though somebody can give Colombia as much money as you want, we could not reproduce the biodiversity we have right now because it will take hundreds of thousands of years. But we are probably one of the, if not the richest country in the world, because no wealth in this planet today could produce the diversity we already have. We barely know what we have, and, and even going from there to actually use the biodiversity as part of our economy is a long distance because you need a lot of research to do that. And the book we did, I think, goes to, toward that because once we know about what we have, we, we love it. We'd be willing to spend money to study. It's a great lesson, what you're saying, in how easy destruction is and how difficult creation is. We can destroy biodiversity so quickly, but as you say, it takes geological time. From what I understand, some of the most diverse ecosystems on the planet are the tropical forests of this region, which are a product of one of the most cataclysmically destructive events in all of geological time and and history. Um, Camila, could you tell us a bit more about how that affected plant life? Because I think the the obvious images we all have are the kind of scared looking dinosaurs and the big meteorite crashing down. We've all seen those illustrations, I think. Um, but it's much more than that. Certainly. And it has been one of the biggest questions, I think, uh, for paleobotanists to understand what happened to plants uh, during that event. Because uh, most of what we know comes from the animal fossil record. And so, um, although some uh, studies have been done in in other countries. It was really important to go into the tropics and try to understand what had happened in the past. So uh, we were lucky enough because in in Colombia we have a lot of rocks of different ages and a lot of fossils. And so and this is interesting because. Uh, some or many years ago, uh, people thought that there were not fossils in Colombia. So we, and by we, I'm talking about a team of more than 20 people working in this project for over, I don't know, 15 years or more. And so we were able to find, let's say, two main localities. One that was... um, around 68 million years old, right before the impact of the meteorite that occurred 66 million years ago, and one that um, happened afterwards. So it was around 58 million years. And so we had this screenshot of how was Colombia before and after the impact. And so we learned multiple things, and one of them was that the flora changed a lot. So there were forests before the impact, 
but uh, the composition was different. There were much more ferns and other conifers, for example, but uh, the, the forest was not as dense as it is today. And because of the impact, there was like a complete change in the flora. This was a catastrophic event, right? Like the earth became dark for some time and then there were changes in temperature. So when the flora finally was able to recover, it changed from that type of forest to one that is actually very similar to the forests that we have today, for example, in the Amazon or in the Chocó region, tropical rainforests. So we learned that... uh, I guess, thanks to the impact, we have the ecosystems that we have today, and specifically these rainforests. We learned that it takes a long, long time for the forest to recover. So when we were talking about how easy it is to destroy something and how slow it is to create it. So we found that we need at least six to eight million years for the ecosystems to, to fully recover. Something to consider when we are creating so much deforestation. That's fascinating. Um, Is it harder to find fossil records of plants, to put it maybe too simply, simply because they don't have bones? Well, it's, it's not, actually. It's, it's quite abundant. Once yeah. you find the first uh, leaf, for example, you find mm-hmm. hundreds sometimes or, or thousands. Like one of these localities that I've been talking about uh, has more than 3,000 fossils. Wow. So the, the thing is that is, is different. So normally, because they're more delicate, you looked in other types of rocks. So for example, you can take right. like a big piece of a rock, which has a very fine grain. And then you, you start to use your hammer and you open it and it opens like a book. And then suddenly you find a, a leaf. Wow. So I think Finding localities with well-preserved leaves is is kind of hard, but once you find them, you can collect a lot of material. So I think if we don't know as much from plants compared to animals, it's because there are not enough uh, researchers. The, The material is actually very abundant. That's fascinating. And in these, these forests that, that eventually recovered, um, in Colombia, the book, has some incredible illustrations. I will be sharing it with subscribers and listeners because it is free online, which is a wonderful, wonderful fact that I will get into later with Luz. Um, But some of the creatures drawn and described are incredible to imagine, right? We've got a 15-meter snake living in La Guajira, five-meter-tall sloths in Huila, turtles the size of cars, and a sort of huge proto-crocodile. And, of course, the megalodon. And if anyone's been past a cinema recently... That's one of the more famous prehistoric animals knocking around these days, right? How many of these animals overlapped with humans, if, if any? And do any of them have relatives who are still knocking around today in Colombia? These lineages um, are definitely still around. Um, so there is, for example, a big debate whether the first um, human populations actually brought to extinction some of these big uh, mammals such as right. the gigantic sloth. It's it's still a debate. Um, more uh, supportive of the hypothesis that it was uh, climate change, mostly more than mm. humans, uh, like destroying all these um, animals. But 
uh, it's still under debate and it depends who you ask. I don't know what Carlos's opinion is on this matter. So, Emily, even, even though this event happened 66 million years ago, and that happened in a single day, and the, the impact was instantaneous, no? and, and this asteroid was only 10 kilometers wide. It's probably the size of Medellin. Really, if you think about that size compared to the whole planet, it's just a dust. Mm. But we still feel the effects of what happened that day. If that meteorite had not hit the Earth at that precise time, even 20 seconds later, the, the meteorite would have hit the middle of the Pacific Ocean and, and nothing would have really happened at the planetary scale. Right. So only because it hit the Yucatan Peninsula is the reason we, you and Camila and, and Luz are talking right now. <laughs> Because without that, the mammals will have never replaced or occupied the ecological space that the dinosaurs used to occupy. The rainforest that we have today would have been very, very different. So we are the product of this historical accident that happened 66 million years ago. And the level of contingency is hard to get your head around, isn't it? Um, yeah, it's crazy. We, we always think that we are predestined to be here, but... We are just uh, very lucky that we are here. Crazy coincidence. So a few stats from the book which really stuck out to me because I think this this discussion we're yeah, having seems to hinge uh, around creation and, and destruction. Um, and there's, again, it's going to be a lot of zeros, but on this planet, which is 4.5 billion years old, a species on average lasts 3 million years. So humans have barely reached... 10% of our life expectancy as a species so far. And that's if we last the average. We've been around for 300,000 years. And there have been 1.6 billion different species in the history of the planet, 99% of which are now extinct. So that's just an enormous amount of flux and churn, right, in kind of life. Um, and there have been six major extinction events. So this meteorite hitting the Earth that we're talking about is only one of six. Um, this is the sixth. The one that we're living in right now is the sixth. Um, so what I want to ask you guys is facing this threat to the biodiversity of Colombia and the entire world in an event which some people estimate is around 200 times the baseline of a normal rate of extinction that we are living in right now, how can this work, understanding our distant past and the distant past of the planet, help us to face this crisis? This is not really about saving the planet. Right. Because the planet doesn't need to be saved. <laughs> There's something of the, of the fossil record is the planet has been, the life on this planet has been around for 3.6 billion years. Mm. And will go for another 2 billion years, at least. Right. And after every major mass extinction, life comes back to you. So this idea that we saviors are here to save the planet doesn't make any sense. It's about how long our species is going to last. We are heterotrophous. We cannot do photosynthesis ourselves. We depend on everything we are eating all the time. Mm -hmm. So once that collapses, we are gone. Life will continue, that's for sure. We are totally irrelevant 
on the planetary scale. So can it help us save ourselves, I suppose, is then the question. Well, this is about ourselves, and I don't think we'll, we'll last. We'll last 10,000 years as a miracle. That's... <laughs> Camila, do you feel any more optimistic about it? <laughs> but this is my optimistic part. I mean, we last 10,000 years. I suppose optimism is a relative term. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, um, I agree with Carlos that we're not going to be here forever. And someday we're going to get extinct as all the other species. Um, I am more hopeful in the way in which I see that in, in just about a generation, people are starting to uh, pay attention to biodiversity, to worry about climate change. So maybe uh, something something's going to help to our species to, to, to be longer and to be more, um, I guess, working together as part of nature. And, and, and yeah, I guess... Uh, one, one of the things that I, I liked about um, paleontology and paleobotany is, is how it can teach us about climate change in the past. So one, one of the things that, that we learned, for example, with this flora that we found uh, 58 million years ago that, that said that the tropical rainforest existed since then, is that throughout these last 50 eight million years of history, the the climate has changed a lot. Actually the, the earth at this moment is is colder than what it has been most of the time. So it's kind of uh, weird to have ice caps in the poles. So what we learn is that at least these tropical rainforests have been uh, in in climates that were warmer in the past. Um, and so maybe, uh, although this is happening way faster than uh, the, the previous climate warming events, uh, maybe there is a possibility that plants can actually adapt to these uh, warmer conditions that we are experiencing and that are continue to, to increase. So that's my, my, my hopeful <laughs> part. I, I wonder if, if maybe at best humans go extinct but we're the ancestors of something else maybe that can survive in the new world too optimistic no <laughs> carlos is having absolutely none of that there's just enthusiastic head shaking going on i don't think natural selection is actually happening as it normally works with us so that makes it even harder i think one of the most interesting things about this project is that it's obviously the the product of an enormous amount of very rigorous academic work um, but it's got as its explicit aim the communication of that work in an inspiring way to the population, to younger people, to people less literate. It's very image heavy. Um, and it's been from its release free online and actively distributed both in schools and vulnerable populations. So, Luz, what, what's the mission of the project? Well, at the beginning, Carlos said that investment in science in Colombia is, you know, near to zero. So imagine the investment on communicating that science to the general public. So I think having the opportunity to do this book in the way we did, and after that, 
and have it uh, <clears throat> online, as you said, and also distributed in almost every region of the country was, was very interesting. And it was the idea from the beginning. I mean, that was our goal uh, since we started thinking about this idea, because the book for the people we want uh, to read it. I mean, it's not because uh, we, we just want the book to be in a library or in a box. We actually want this book to be used and we actually want uh, this the knowledge in the book to be useful, not just because for the sake of knowledge, but what questions are you uh, doing uh, to yourself or to your teacher or to your parents because of the knowledge on the book. So what what's uh, if the book is an inspiration or if it's going to be, you know, it's going to help a mother or a father to to the, the their bonding with their children. I mean, it's what what that knowledge can uh, trigger. That's that's the most important thing. So that's why we did all these efforts to to actually bring the book to as many people as we could. And right. Why, why illustrated? Well, we are in love with the work of uh, Punto Aparte. So we were certain that the book was going to be as beautiful as it is and it will like uh, match uh, all the, the knowledge that is in the scientific papers. It was going to be transformed into these uh, pages that, that you see. It's easier to connect through images. Uh, and that's why, even though we thought the book to be for students or, or, you know, people from 12 to 18 years old, even, you know, little kids use it. So images have, have a lot of potential. And even as somebody slightly over the age of 18 myself, I found um, the way that it's been illustrated is incredibly inspiring because as we've been saying, I think we know what certain prehistoric animals look like. We have a very clear set of images as to what prehistoric animals look like and prehistoric plants as well. And this book is extraordinary. It's shapes of animals that I had never seen. And it totally opens your mind as to the different forms of life that can and have existed on the planet. Um, images are so powerful. And I, I understand you guys did workshops all over the country in a huge majority of departments. And I'm wondering if it was received differently depending on where you went. Yeah, yeah, because, I mean, you know, uh, Colombia is very diverse. So you can, I mean, not compare, you know, a workshop in Bogota where I, I, my teachers have, you know, access to museums and libraries and a, a lot of universities uh, with a workshop uh, in, you know, in Leticia in the Amazon, Amazon or in, you know, in Chocó. But, uh, I mean, everybody loves fossils. And even if they haven't seen one before or heard about uh, fossils before, they are excited about, about finding out uh, what the stories uh, that fossils uh, can tell. I had teachers that told me, like, finally, I have this tool to uh, teach uh, my students about paleontology and about fossils and about, you know, geological time. Uh, because as, as we also mentioned earlier, the reference were about, you know, other uh, countries uh, or, you know, species that are not here. So they finally have uh, a tool to talk about biodiversity in the paleontological uh, record in a country that we claim that is a very diverse, but biodiverse, but we don't know very much about how that uh, biodiversity came to be. 
Right. About three days ago, I had a conversation with a friend who revealed that he's just not very convinced by the theory of evolution. So I'm wondering if, if you've encountered any of the three of you in your careers um, resistance to this to this science on the grounds of religion or just doubt? I have uh, this scenario in a workshop. I think it was in San Andres, I think. But, I mean, again, it's not, you know, the knowledge or the, you know, the specific data or, you know, let's win over because my argument is uh, scientifically based. It's about the discussion that, I mean, this can trigger. I had this, uh, like, it was a discussion among uh, teachers. And I just, like, you know, I just uh, did, a, like, like a, step, a step back. And I just watched the discussion because it was very interesting. I mean, teachers themselves were, you know, arguing about, um, like, the these uh, different positions. So, so I think that's, that's what's... Uh, valuable, like the discussion that goes on. Yeah, this is also not a dichotomy. So there are many scientists that are deeply religious. Stephen Jay Gold, one of the greatest paleontologists of the 20th century, and he was uh, deeply religious. Because of course. There are two different atmospheres. The science will never tell you why you are here. <laughs> what is the point of being alive? Right, absolutely. I remember many years ago, I, I published a paper about a flooding that happened in Amazonia many million years ago. And I received a handwritten letter from an old lady from somewhere in Oklahoma. She was about 80 years old. And she wrote this long letter telling me why uh, I was wrong. And was, I was seeing in the rock was the, the Noah's flood. Wow. And I replied to her, and we exchanged letters for many years wow. until she passed away. And, and, and it was very, it was very cordial, the, the exchange of ideas, and you find people everywhere. That, uh, yeah, yeah, and the ability and to hold multiple truths is necessary to a real debate, right? Yeah, because there is not really a, the point of a debate because it's, it's, yeah, there are two different realms of, mm. of and, so science and religion are not in the same yeah. same place. So there is no point in discussing or trying to convince something somebody that is about <laughs> faith and, and and science about the data we can collect and the, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and I think that when you actually start to uh, argue or to try to convince people that science is the truth, then you are changing science uh, as a at the level of, of religion, and then it's not science anymore. So, so yeah, right. it's good to be cautious. Just to kind of round off, there has been what's been called, despite the lack of funding, uh, despite all of the problems in Colombia, uh, a paleontological boom, some of which is is thanks to the 2016 peace process and territories opening up. Um, but I did a, a rough, you know, a very brief scan of the news media. And just this year, there's been the fossil of a huge turtle in Santander and in Tatacoa, footprints of an iguanodon in Boyacá, and fossils of a sprassodonta, 
which is a predatory saber-toothed marsupial from 3,000 years ago, also found. Um, so continually, as you've been mentioning, Colombia proves itself to be an incredibly rich place for paleontology, for fossil discovery. But there's no natural history museum at a national level, and there's no university that offers a degree in paleontology. So what's the, what's the future of this discipline in Colombia? Well, the critical mass has been growing for the last 15 years, and now we are producing a lot of science. There are far more things to do. Many fossils still undiscovered, and many areas we have not explored. And we have more and more students joining the field because there are too many things happening. And uh, But it's, it's a paradox that even though Colombia is the most biodiverse country almost in the world, and we are the only country in Latin America, in the Americas, that do not have a National Museum of Natural History. It's incredible. It's crazy. Mm. Even Salvador has a Museum of Natural History. And, and we don't... Even Panama. I live in Panama and there is a Museum of Natural History. And we don't have this. And there are some wonderful regional ones. I would encourage anyone listening, if they do, visit Tatacoa. Museo Historia Natural La Tatacoa. Very, like, uh, local. It's run by, by locals. Um, so even though I, I think we've all rather depressingly agreed the future of future of humanity is not necessarily terribly bright. The future of paleontology, at least in Colombia, is is looking good. Critical mass is being reached, and this book is certainly inspiring interest all over the country in the discipline. Yes, this is the best time to be a paleontologist. Also because the, the, I think the, the human species love paleontology so much that we all decide to produce a natural experiment to warm the planet. <laughs> how What happened and how we can compare that with the what, well, let's hope. It's a record because global warming has been happening many, many times in the past. I guess we'll just have to hope that something evolves in the distant future with enough capacity or interest to study the fossils that we're leaving behind then? Yeah, well, 20 million years and another <laughs> will come here from another planet and, and study. I don't know, as because we lasted so it's a short time in this planet. Well, I think that's probably enough optimism for one day. <laughs> Thank you all so much for coming on. It's been so interesting. And the book is, is just an absolute marvel. So huge congrats. And to have it free as well. It's, it's such an important project for the country and, you know, further, yeah, further it's, afield. It's a beautiful book. And one of those books that even though you have a PDF, you would like to have it printed. Again, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Emily, for the invitation. Thank you very much. Thank you. Gracias. Ciao. Ciao. Gracias. The Colombia Calling podcast is sponsored by Latin News, a leading source of political and economic analysis on Latin America and the Caribbean since 1967. Their flagship publication, the Latin American Weekly Report, provides a behind-the-scenes briefing on all the week's key developments throughout the region. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at latinnews.com. We are also sponsored by BNB Columbia Tours, which is a leading tour operator providing a wonderful range of exclusive small group shared tours for those over 50, along with customizable private tours to both popular and off-the-map destinations throughout this beautiful and diverse country. If you're interested in experiencing one of their unforgettable journeys through Colombia, be it a shared tour with like-minded travelers or creating a unique 
private package of your own, just complete the form on the Columbia Calling website, that's www.columbiacalling.co, or the BNB Columbia Tours website, that's www.bnbcolumbia.com, and they'll be in touch within 24 hours to answer all of your questions and to start the planning of your exclusive Colombian adventure. So that's bnbcolumbia.com and latinnews.com. Thank you for supporting our sponsors. Chorro y atarraya, la canoa de para llegar a la playa. Va subiendo la corriente, con chinchorro y atarraya.